Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 17, One Man's War. U.S. Ambassador to France, William Bullitt, wasn't exactly sure of the protocol for handing over a foreign capital city to a victorious army. Where would they set up? Where would they make their base of operations? The Germans never did anything lightly and would need numerous offices for their vast organization and bureaucracy. But Bullet needn't have worried. General Bogoslav von Studnitz, the commander of the German 87th Infantry Division, slotted to be the military governor of Paris, had his staff requisition the Hotel Crillon that morning just before 8 a.m. This was located next to the American embassy, so at least Bullet could keep an eye on him. Of course, that worked the other way as well. Studnitz's first act was to put Paris time ahead one hour, thereby matching it to Berlin. The tone was set. Putting aside his anger and fear, Bullet knew he had a job to do, and that was making sure a smooth transition of the city went ahead, as he had promised Premier Paul Renault. So the ambassador had Councillor Robert Murphy, Military Attaché Colonel Horace H. Fuller, and Naval Attaché Commander Roscoe Hillencotter visit General von Studnitz once he was settled in. Of course, it was hard to tell when exactly that would be. The Germans were always hustling. But as soon as they saw the swastika being raised over the crayon, they assumed now was as good a time as any. Murphy later wrote of this moment, quote, General von Studnitz appreciated it was the duty of the attaches to gather intelligence for their governments, and he was quite willing to inform us, full and frankly, unquote. Von Studnitz then talked of the war, that the Germans were in a mopping-up phase and should be done within ten days. That the way would be clear for them to focus on the British. And as the British seemed to not have even one equipped division intact, it was hard to see how they could resist the Wehrmacht's full attention. Hillenkotter couldn't help but ask how the Germans were going to cross the channel. But the smiling general, quote, brushed aside this question with the comment that all plans were made, unquote. And the three Americans looking around at the already smoothly running German paper pushing machine, even down to having enough of the correct size flags for the various buildings they had already commandeered, were not so sure the general was wrong. As things were now moving forward nicely, at least from the German perspective, it was time for them to, quite frankly, strut and celebrate. And this they were going to do through the streets of Paris, past a reviewing stand on which General von Studnitz would stand. All the Americans managed to avoid standing next to the general as the Green Heart Division goose-stepped by. That is, except for Robert Murphy. He had to stand in for Bullet, who would rather be dead than seeming to support the new boss of his beloved Paris. A part of the smooth transition Bullet helped to effect, the French police were on duty, though they looked just as dejected as their citizen counterparts. The streets had been cleaned up by the local garbage men. The Underground Railroad was running 
more or less on time, again manned by its normal personnel. June 14th was an ugly day to witness for the French, who decided to stay in Paris. But for the Germans, it was glorious. The march was perfect as it had been previously planned out to the smallest detail. A German battalion, all spit and polish, marched along the Place d'Etoiles with a Nazi band, and the swastika was put atop the Arc de Triomphe. It must be said that the degree of mocking the beaten French with the parade even upset several German generals. Within a room of German officers, a relatively young officer was angered enough to say out loud to General Franz Holder that Hitler deserved to die for this outrage against established protocols. Halder remained silent, but another general in the room seconded the young officer. Only then did Halder speak. He then calmly told all in the room that it was highly unlikely that the German people would support a military coup just after Germany's greatest victory over the hated French. And the parades weren't about to stop, not after this major victory. They became a staple of Teutonic might along the streets of Paris. But the French people would soon pay as much of attention to the goose-stepping as they did their own red lights. That morning of June 14th, as German forces patrolled their latest domain, Sylvia Beach, the American owner of Shakespeare Company, was hiding out in the fourth-story apartment of Adrienne Monnier. Mrs. Monnier owned and operated her own bookshop, La Maison des Amis des Livres, located just around the corner from Mrs. Beach's. But the two ladies were not competitors, sharing in a moment of fear. They had been friends, even collaborators, for years, thus establishing their little part of Paris as the center of avant-garde contemporary French and American literature. And for a while, somewhere within the many years of knowing each other, they had been lovers. Beach had established her bookstore literally at the end of the Great War. Monnier's was already up and running. Between the two, they had played host to some of the great French and American writers of their time. Gertrude Stein, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Sherwood Anderson, Ezra Pound, and as for the French writers, some of their regulars were Paul Valere, Guillaume Apollinaire, and Hula Romaine. To be sure, theirs was a world for the left-bank bohemians, and not the more established, straight-laced, right-bankers, such as the American Library. Like everywhere else in Paris, on this day of June 14, 1940, their shops were closed, and the people not sure what to expect. Sylvia took some comfort in the fact that one of the red American seals was attached to her shop doorway. The two ladies could not help but hear the roar of engines from the tanks and armored cars as the Germans went by the window. This was the first time that Sylvia heard the stomping of leather jackboots. Quote, Those boots always made them seem much more enraged than they were. Unquote. Earlier that morning, someone had come by and told them that they heard that there was to be a 48-hour curfew. Then they heard the curfew was to start at 9 p.m., for that night and every night. However, around noon, they saw Parisians on the streets accepting food from German soldiers. As they ventured out, the two women were gratified to see that at least one part of Paris life 
was returning to normal. One of the better bordellos had put up a sign that read, quote, business as usual from 3 p.m., unquote. Of course, all of this was before the German army started requisitioning the majority of France's food to feed their comrades in arms all over Europe, as well as the German people. Naturally, the Germans were doing more than handing out food, visiting <clears throat> worker women, and celebrating their latest victory. The race for snatching up French public buildings was on. The Germans had already grabbed, they saw it as their right, both Houses of Parliament, the Chamber of Deputies over the Seine, and the Senate in the Luxembourg Gardens. Next to be taken over was the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the Quai d'Orsay, the Naval Ministry, and of course, they already possessed, next to the Naval Building, the Hotel Crillon. Many other buildings were also taken over as well, as many French monuments were. The tricolor was taken down from all of these and replaced with the swastika. Then machine gun mounts and piles of sandbags could be seen under the German flags. Also falling to the Germans in their need for staffing, but also to demonstrate the new order, was the Ritz Hotel, the Majestic, the Raphael, and the Georges Sunk. But Bullet managed to beat them to the Hotel Bristol. He had leased it from its owner, so now it was in American hands. On that day of French humiliation, the American flag flew over the Bristol. The Germans were annoyed, but did not ask it be removed. Soon American citizens from the Red Cross, the Rockefeller Foundation, and Ann Morgan's ambulance units were ensconced in the Bristol. Of course, Ann Morgan was hiding frightened Jews in her set of rooms. As we mentioned last time, Eugene Bullitt's Le Duc Jazz Club, along with every other jazz haunt owned by black Americans, was closed, or soon would be. But Bullard, no stranger to the harder aspects of life, had already adjusted to the new reality and gave himself new goals. Quote, I said goodbye and set out to join the 170th Regiment in holding back the enemy. Unquote. He was going to help fight the German invaders. At least, that was his plan. But upon reaching Chalon, about 50 miles away, he found out from some traveling refugees that his destination was already under German control. The 170th had been forced to retreat. So he returned to Paris. Just outside the city, he heard that the 51st was still resisting the invaders at Orléans. So he started walking again, this time heading south. At Chartres, about 50 miles south, Bullard ran into an old friend from the French Foreign Legion, Bob Scanlon. Together, they would do as they did during the Great War, take on the Hun with American grit and ingenuity. But as they were about to move on, a group of Stukas flew over and dropped their loads of bombs. The two men separated and scrambled for cover. Just then, Bullard watched as one of the bombs landed practically at Scanlon's location. Once the planes were away, he ran over to his friend, but couldn't find a single trace of him. Bullard had fought the Germans in the Great War and was determined to stop them from taking what he thought of as home, Paris. But now, the desire to fight them was far beyond personal. 
Bullard had only known unfair treatment and a warfare of one kind or another. As a small boy, his father was almost lynched in front of him by neighboring drunk whites. Not wanting to end up like this, he ran away, working at odd jobs until he stowed away on a steamer. The boy was soon found out by the captain, who, taking pity on him, dropped Eugene off in Glasgow with five pounds. Again, the young Bullard worked where he could and fell into boxing as he got older. Making something of a success of this, he eventually found himself competing in Paris. He was pleasantly shocked to find his color did not mark him out for special negative treatment there. So, when France went to war with Germany, Bullard joined in to protect the only country that had ever treated him fairly. Now, as a part of the French Foreign Legion, his unit was sent to the Somme. Bullard had been made a machine gunner. And, as with so many of that horrendous battle, Bullard was injured. After being released from the hospital, he and others, also released back to active duty, were transferred to the 170th Infantry Regiment. Eugene and those with him then took part in the Battle of Verdun, resisting the Germans there. In one particular battle, Bullard had his leg opened by shrapnel. After he recovered from this, he was discharged from the Foreign Legion. But Bullard's anger was still with him, and he continued to desire to protect France. So, in February of 1917, he qualified as a pilot. He managed to join the Lafayette Escadrille, composed of Americans, but had to fight against an American doctor who didn't want to see any of his black countrymen fighting the Germans. To the bigoted doctor, it wasn't right for blacks to kill white men, even if they were the enemy. But Bullard was in. The French, losing so many men every day, gladly took on anyone who wanted to assist in pushing back the Germans. So, Eugene had, quote, all blood runs red, unquote, painted on the side of his plane and completed just over 20 missions. His plane had been hit several times and he had at least one confirmed kill over the fields of Verdun. But then the Americans proper came to the war and all of the American pilots joined the U.S. 103rd Pursuit Squadron. Bullard, the only black pilot, was not asked to join. Still, Bullard wasn't done, and the war wasn't over. So, he joined the 170th Infantry Regiment as a non-combatant this time, until the end of the war. Because of this very kind of treatment, suffered by American blacks by their own countrymen, even General Pershing was no exception. Many of them decided to stay in France after the war. Bullard walked away from the killing with the following medals. The Legion of Honor, the Medal Militaire, the Croix de Guerre, the Croix de Combatant Volontaire de la Guerre. Boxing paid the bills for Bullard while he took up drumming and found homes with various jazz bands around Montmartre. He then parlayed his having fought for France into a promotion. Eugene came upon a young Italian who was trying to open a nightclub, but couldn't get a license to stay open after midnight. Bullard joined the cause, and because of all he had done for France during the war, the local magistrate was more than happy to make it happen.
In appreciation, Buller was made artistic director of the new club. Buller then met and married Marcelle Strauman, the daughter of a rich industrialist. He was welcomed into the family as he had been welcomed into France. By 1928, Bullard had saved up enough money to open his own jazz club, Le Grand Duc. It was an instant success and, for a while, was the center of the jazz world. Some of his guests included the Prince of Wales and Ernest Hemingway. Bullard helped out a young struggling poet by the name of Langston Hughes by giving him a job as a dishwasher. All of this hard work paid off, and Bullard was soon able to open a second club and a men's gym. Devoting so much time to his business, Bullard and his wife saw little of each other, and so divorced in 1935. In 1939, before Germany invaded Poland, a relatively new French intelligence service recruited Bullard. He was now part of a vast organization that kept tabs on the roughly 17,000 Germans in Paris. And as a fair number of them visited his clubs and his gym, and he spoke fluent French and more than passable German, though that last part was kept secret, Bullard was able to overhear and pass on many little snippets that helped fill in the bigger picture for the French counterintelligence. When war erupted across Europe in September of 1939, Paris, along with every other major city, was under a blackout, which put a stop to the jazz clubs. But in February of 1940, the curfew was lifted a bit, so Bullard went back to Paris and started up again Le Grand Duc, only to close it once more when the Germans sped their way west. Which brings us back to the present. Bullard finally found the 51st Infantry Regiment at Orléans. He was again, as in the First War, assigned to a machine gun company, who was manning the left bank of the Loire River, desperately trying to hold back the Germans. But then the invaders brought up their artillery and began to shell the city. Bullard and his men were ordered to retreat, which was fortuitous as the shelling caused the city to catch fire. Again, luck being on his side, as the wind was blowing east to west, which meant the flames did not spread towards the 51st, or towards the beautiful cathedrals at Orléans. The Germans occupied Orléans on June 17th, three days after occupying Paris. The same day, Marshal Pétain asked Germany for an armistice. The 51st held together well under their retreat, and surviving the orders to abandon their position, having made their way a hundred miles to the south to Le Blanc. The 51st was under a heavy artillery attack when a series of shells landed amongst Bullard and his comrades. Eleven men were killed instantly. Sixteen more were severely wounded. Bullard himself was thrown against a stone wall. Although his back was injured and his right eye swollen shut by a nasty cut, Bullard was still determined to fight the Germans, especially when he heard about a radio broadcast put out by General Charles de Gaulle. The Frenchman asked for anyone who still wanted to resist to make their way to him in London. The address ended with, quote, Whatever happens, the flame of French resistance must not be extinguished and will not be extinguished, unquote. Bullard's will still wanted to resist, 
but his body could not keep up. He was advised to make for Bordeaux, as the route there was still clear. Instead, Bullard, armed with painkillers, sardines, and a bicycle, made his way past Bordeaux and went straight for Barreritz, close to the Spanish border. He arrived there at 4 a.m. on June 22nd. Bullard's injuries were beyond the capabilities of Barreritz, but he was given a change of clothes, thus removing forever the French uniform he had been so proud to wear. Then he was asked for his passport, but he didn't have one. He had never needed one. Counsel Roy McWilliams approved Bullet for a passport, but couldn't issue him one. For that, he would have to head back to Bordeaux, and a passport was his only way out of France and back to the United States. So he cycled back, proved his American citizenship by answering detailed questions about East Coast geography, and earned his golden ticket to the USA. He then made his way back to the Spanish border, got a lift near the end, and on July 12th, Eugene Bullard departed Lisbon Harbor on the liner Manhattan. His destination? New York City. When he arrived, the American Legion had secured hotel reservations for the American World War I veterans of the French Army. Bullard, his back now probably ruined, applied for one of these rooms. He was told by the representative that there was no room for him. The excuse was that, as no one knew he was on board, no room had been held for him. Eugene Bullard later wrote, quote, For me, that burst of brightness from Miss Liberty's torch was quickly clouded. Unquote. 